pray that as we consider your word now, we pray that you will speak to us. Uh, we pray that you'll help us to um, understand uh, what you did for us that first Easter. Uh, and be grateful to you and rejoice and to uh, live our lives accordingly. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The Easter event is the most important event in history. But it's not just history. It is historical, but it does have ongoing repercussions for everyone in this room, both now and in the future. This evening, as we look at our passage together, we're going to see both the historical events of Easter and their significance to our lives today. Now, Paul wrote this uh, passage in a letter to Christians in a place called Corinth, which was in Greece. He's probably writing about 20 years after the events of the first Easter. And he reminds them, as he writes, about the facts that they were given when he first went to preach to them beforehand. Not just the facts, but their significance as well. And the proclamation of these facts, together with their significance, is called the gospel, the good news. And Paul reminds them of the content of this gospel. He says in verse, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now let's look at a bit details of the content of this gospel, this, this message. At verse 3 he says, first of all, I deliver to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And before we get to the resurrection, first we have Jesus' death. Christ died. That was a historical fact. Everyone knew that. The Romans had crucified him and, and just to be sure, they thrust a spear up his side and and blood and water came out. He was dead. All the eyewitnesses agreed. Even his enemies agreed. Even the Roman historian Tacitus, who called Christianity hideous and evil, no friend of Christianity, reports that Jesus was executed by Pontius Pilate. Jesus died. There's no argument at the time. Only the Quran says he didn't die, but that was written a few hundred years later in a different part of the world. At the time of Jesus everyone at least could agree on this fact that Christ had died but Paul didn't just preach that Christ died he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures there's the significance of the event of which that Christ died is the history you see all of us have sinned all of us at various points have turned away from God and, and, and try to run our life our way rather than His. And every time we do that, we're actually saying to God, actually, you know, I want to be my own God. I want you to rule me. I might call you God. I might worship you once a week. I might pray to you, but I'm, I'm going to ask for your help when I need it. But actually, I want to be God in my own life. And that's sin. We do it differently. Some of us do it in a really destructive way. 
and the effect of that is, is tragically clear in our lives and in the lives of those who love us others do it more subtly seem relatively good people others do it more hypocritically seem like really religious and yet still in rebelling against God but it's all relative really all of us in our own ways have rebelled against God we haven't treated him properly as God as the creator who deserves all our honor all our obedience all our glory all our love and the Bible says that the wages of sin is death being cut off from God being punished by him eternal death and judgment being cut off from not only from, from God but from every good thing that he gives which is hell and yet despite of our sin God still loves us we don't deserve to be loved by him in that way but, but he does and <coughs> 2,000 years ago God became a human being in the person of Jesus Jesus lived a perfect life a life that was pure without a trace of sin and then as our passage says he died for our sins and he died for our sins according to the scriptures now the scriptures at this time was, was mostly the Old Testament scriptures the, the part of the Bible written before, before Jesus those of us who were there at our Good Friday service at, at uh, 7 o'clock on Friday night we, we read a, from the prophet Isaiah what he wrote 700 years before Jesus was born and we read it again just now it said he was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all See, Jesus died for us for our sins he died on the cross to take your sins my sin on himself and as he bore our sin he bore the full punishment that, that each of us deserved took the wrath of God for human sin died there as our substitute so that, so that we can be forgiven and let off the punishment that, that is due to us now we know what a substitute is don't we when uh, playing football and you substitute means you come off the field someone else goes on and maybe you haven't been playing very well someone takes your place <coughs> Jesus took our place imagine how bad it would be to, to, to be in hell for eternity imagine an eternity of anguish concentrated in a moment we can't imagine it can we but Jesus experienced my hell and yours he could do that because he's the infinite God and he did it for us Christ died for us according to the scriptures now the next thing Paul says is that he was buried again that's not terribly controversial verse 4 he was buried and even the enemies of Christianity agreed with that I mean they set up Roman guards at the tomb to, to make sure he stay buried and no argument there but we keep on reading verse 4 it says and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures not only was he buried but he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures you see God had spoken in the Old Testament scriptures about Jesus' death and resurrection many times, many ways 
We see events in Israel's history that pointed forward to it. We see rituals and sacrifices that happen every day in the temple that, that only make sense in light of it. We have direct words of prophecy that, that speak of it. The Old Testament scriptures indicate that the Christ, God's promised king, the one whom God says will rule the world, not only Israel but the world, would die and rise again. Like that prophet Isaiah whom I quoted earlier. Uh, we, we saw the first part of Isaiah 53. We keep on reading. We shall see what, what happens to the person who dies for the sins of others. It says, Verse 10, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He will divide him a portion with the many. Divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. See, see that's resurrection there, isn't it? The one who died, yet prolongs his days. Also, you get in the Psalms, King David, speaking prophetically through his spirit, wrote in the Psalms, You shall not let your Holy One see decay. The Holy One is the one God had promised, the one that people were waiting for. He would be raised from the dead, would not see decay. And that's where the rubber hits the road. You see, here's where Paul needs to back up his claims. Everyone agrees Jesus died, everyone agreed he was buried. Now you've got to back up the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, mind you, there's no argument about the empty tomb. Everyone's there. The tomb is there, and the disciples start preaching about the empty tomb a few weeks later. The story from the authorities where the disciples stole the body while the guards were sleeping, which is unlikely given the Roman guards don't tend to sleep on duty, or the pain of death. Not to mention the seal and the stone, and well, the tomb was empty. And that requires explanation. But... To back up his claim on the resurrection, Paul doesn't cite the circumstantial evidence of the empty tomb, but the eyewitness evidence of those who could vouch for Jesus. And so he says in verse 5 to 8, he says, And he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me. The risen Jesus had appeared to all these people, eyewitnesses, many of whom are still alive. You can go and talk to them. See, Paul saying that this is real. Now, could all these people be hallucinating at the same time? Don't think so. Could they have been deliberately lying? Well, well there's too many for that. Something, something would have given. And their lives were changed by it. They go from the disciples go from being hiding in a room to boldly risking life and limb to proclaim the resurrection. Many of them died for believing and preaching the facts of the resurrection. You know, people don't die for something they know isn't true. People die for lies all the time, don't they? But because it's, they think it's true. If they're in this big conspiracy, they, they don't die for things they know isn't true. These people had witnessed the risen Jesus. They believed it was true. And this was real. It's not some pious sounding garbage about a spiritual resurrection, you know, Jesus living on in their hearts while, while his body rots in the grave. No, no, this is real. They saw him, they heard him, they touched him, they even had breakfast with him. They were eyewitnesses of, of something incredible. Something that would change their whole lives, not just their lives, but it would change the course of history. Something so extraordinary that, that 2,000 years later, people all over the world will still be celebrating it. Jesus had risen from the dead and they knew it. 
They were witnesses and they were willing to die for it because they knew it was true. No wonder Sir Edward Clarke wrote this. As a lawyer, I've made prolonged study for the evidences of the events of the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive, and over and over again in the High Court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. And this is without pulling strings, correct, 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 that kind of thing, right? The gospel evidence for the resurrection, I accepted unreservedly as a testimony of truthful men the facts they were able to substantiate. Why does Paul need to remind the Corinthians of this? Why does he have to say this again here? Well, there were some people in the church at Corinth who were saying that there is no resurrection. They weren't trying to deny Jesus' resurrection, and they couldn't do that. But they did doubt that the Christians would be raised at the end of time when Jesus returns. You see, they were probably so caught up with the Greek philosophy that they thought that the physical was bad in itself. And so with death, uh, the soul is, is freed from this prison, able to exist as pure spirit. And that's how you reach God. But there are big problems with that view. That's not a Christian view. Sure, our bodies are corrupted by sin, but, but God doesn't hate the physical or the material. He made it. He's the creator. And at the end of times, when He raises us up at the end, we will have resurrection bodies. Jesus, Paul says, He's the very first one to have this experience. So if you say there's no resurrection, if you say God's not interested in the physical, then the logical implication of your position is that Jesus is not risen either. That's what he says in verse 12 and 13. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. The Corinthians knew that Christ had been raised. He's pushing their thinking. He wants them to, to see they can't keep holding this, this Greek view of the body if, if they believe that Christ has been raised. And then he argues further. If they were to go on to say that Christ hasn't been raised, then look, they may as well not be Christians. Because if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then there are three negative things that follow that make it not worthwhile. Well, let's look at those three things now. And then we'll see from the opposite of those why it's so good that Christ has been raised. Firstly, if Christ had not been raised, then the apostles' preaching and the Corinthians' faith would have been useless. If Christ had not been raised, the apostles' preaching and the Corinthians' faith would have been worthless, useless. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul is saying that the value of the apostles' preaching, the value of his preaching, and the faith of the believers is based on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
It's intrinsic to the nature of the, of the message Paul was preaching. You see, he says in verse 15, if it's, if it's not true, then we are misrepresenting God. We testified about God that he raised Christ. If he did not raise Christ, then we're misrepresenting God. We testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that they are not raised. Paul was not preaching morality. That is, he isn't just telling people, be good. Because, well, that's right, isn't it? Whether or not Christ is raised, it's still got to be good. Paul was not just preaching a philosophy. Not just giving a system of knowledge that enables you to, to understand God and the universe in a theoretical way that, that can be applied irrespective of historical events. Paul was not just preaching religion. There's lots of religions in the ancient world, lots of ways to try and reach or, or placate the gods that don't depend on one man rising from the dead. What Paul was preaching was, as we saw at the beginning, the gospel. The good news of what God has done in Jesus. And it was a gospel that we saw would save people if they believed it, if they took their stand on it, if they held it firmly to the end of their lives. It was that gospel that would, that would bring people from under God's judgment to being under God's favor. Paul preached the death and resurrection of Jesus. That was his message. And this news, he says, this proclamation of this historical events and their significance, that is what saves. That is one of the many differences between Christianity and other religions. See, most other religions are unverifiable. For example, Buddhism does not stand or fall with the historicity of Gautama Buddha. I've got no reason to believe that he doesn't, didn't exist, but, but even if he didn't, it doesn't matter, as far as Buddhist philosophy is concerned. The truth and falsehood of it is not based on a historical event, it's, it's a philosophy, it's in the world of ideas. But Christianity is not like that. It stands or falls with the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Things that happen in history. In the real world, in our world, if Jesus didn't really die, if he didn't really rise, then this is not gospel, it's not good news, it is fantasy, it is worthless. But because Jesus died and rose again, since the gospel is true, then by this gospel the Corinthians are saved, and if we believe this gospel and hold it to the end, then we will be saved as well. If Christ had not been raised, Paul's preaching and our faith would be useless. But friends, since Christ has indeed been raised, then we know that he is indeed the one that had been promised. We know the gospel is true and our faith is founded on fact. The second negative statement I want us to consider is in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now, that statement is very similar to the last one, isn't it? But there's subtle, there's subtle ad addition there. That is, why don't you sit back and think with me for a moment. Think about your sin, your, your, your failure to treat God properly. Think about Jesus dying on the cross. Now, if you're someone who 
trust in Jesus as your Savior and King, you knew that he, you know that He died there to take the punishment for you. Take your place because He loves you. Now think of Jesus coming out of the tomb, risen again, free from the shackles of death. The fact that Jesus is risen means that, that your sin is gone. That is, if your sin was still there, if, if Jesus hadn't completely dealt with your sin, then he could not have walked out of that tomb. If your sin was not completely paid for on the cross, the punishment death would still apply. On the cross, Jesus wiped your slate clean of every sin by taking it on himself. And the resurrection shows that, that his slate, though it became the filthiest of all, because he bore the sins of many, is clean again because he has borne the sin and his judgment to completion. He got rid of every last one of your sins and mine. There is no more to pay. The fact that Jesus rose again means he has finished his work of dealing with our sins. And if Christ had not been raised, if his then, then his death was not effective. The sacrifice was not accepted. Our faith would be futile. We would still be in our sins. But since Christ has been raised, those whose faith in Him can know with confidence that our sins are completely extinguished. We know that God will not hold our sins against us anymore. We know the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross really worked. Because we know that Christ indeed is risen. The third negative statement we're considering is in verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people, people sorry, if, this life, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says, then all we get out of Christ is a bit of inspiration for a few short years. Well, we're a pretty pathetic lot, aren't we? Now, some of you might think, hang on, hang on, Andrew, you're exaggerating a little bit. Yeah, because, well, well blame it on Paul. He's exaggerating a bit, isn't he? I mean, Christians live a good and happy life now, and, well, if that was in the end, then, well, at least they got all, if, that, if that's all there is, then at least they got, you know, the social benefits of being in church, all the support, all the psychological benefits of religion, um, all the moral benefits they can pass on to their children. You know, what are you, what are you talking about? Christianity is good for you, isn't it? Whether or not it's true. Well, try telling that to the Apostle Paul, who labored and toiled and sacrificed in so many different ways to preach the gospel. Who so many times was imprisoned and flogged and stoned and eventually killed for his faith in Jesus. Try telling that to the Christians in Rome who were martyred for, for not sacrificing to the idols of the emperors. Try telling that to the millions of God's people down through the ages who've sacrificed life and limb to be faithful to Jesus. Try telling that to the Christians in Sudan, who even today are being vigorously persecuted for their faith in Christ. Telling that to the Christians in North Korea, who lose their lives for their faith in Jesus. Try telling that to people in this congregation, some of whom have endured bitterness from friends and relatives for their commitment to Christ. 
try telling it to people in this congregation who sacrifice time and energy and money and, and work opportunities for the sake of the gospel. Friends, if you and I cannot, at least in some way, be pitied by unbelievers, perhaps we should reconsider the level of our commitment. I fear sometimes we make it a bit too easy for ourselves. Because true Christianity is not a hobby. It's not a social game. It's not something that we can put away for the week and, and bring out for an hour or two on Sundays. It's, it's a whole life of commitment to Jesus. A commitment that takes precedence over every other area of life. It's a commitment that always leads to sacrifice and sometimes even to death. It's a commitment that should make no sense at all if all we get out of it is for this life only. And friends, if Christ has not been raised, this kind of faith is not good news. It's a horribly evil deception. And the sooner we close down and go home, the better. But you know, if you plan to live beyond retirement, it's only reasonable to sacrifice some luxuries while you're working in order to save for it. And if you know that death is not the end, you'd be a fool not to take that into account, wouldn't you? Even if it did mean some hardship now. Unbelievers might call that pitiful. But really, that's the only sensible thing to do. And friends, since Christ has been raised, we know that death is not the end. We know that whatever suffering or, or sacrifice we face now is nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed when Jesus returns. And all the things that everyone thinks are so attractive, we, we can see them for what they are. They're temporary. Money, comfort, power, and career. They're all helpful, but they won't last. And if we spend our days chasing them, we're wasting our time. Now we use them, but what we really seek, what we truly value, what we labor for, is that which lasts forever. Loving God and loving others so much that we seek for them to join us in loving God as well. And we'll be willing to make big sacrifices for these priorities. Friends, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But since our hope is for eternity... Our labor is not in vain, because following Jesus is the only smart thing to do. So, if Christ had not been raised, our preaching and our faith would be useless, our faith would be futile, we would still be in our sins, and we should be pitied, really, more than anyone else. But because Jesus rose again, the gospel is not useless. Our faith is not useless. It is not futile. We are saved from our sins and we have hope not only for this life but the life to come. And we are not to be pitied at all. In fact, verse 20, 20 to 23 remind us of the, of, of the great future that we have because of Christ's resurrection. But in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ 
shall all be made alive. See, sin and death could not hold Jesus. And if we belong to Jesus, if we've been united with him by faith, then they cannot hold us either. The Easter message tells us that they have been beaten. Yes, they give us trouble and pain now, but ultimately we do not need to fear them anymore. Because at the end of time, we will be risen with Jesus in glory with him forever. Where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And we'll join in the strain that Paul quotes right at the end of the chapter. Where, O grave, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Our triumph is assured, my friends, because Christ is indeed risen. (coughs) And so, brothers and sisters, today is a day of celebration. Go up and party. Do it hard. Because with the resurrection of Jesus, everything changes. We face life and death in a very different way than those who have no hope. Life has meaning and purpose. We don't just live for 70 years and then die, or 80 years and 90 years. We live forever. And so we will spend the time that God gives us here with eternity's values in mind. And so when we go out and go home, don't let the significance of the resurrection slip our minds. When we go to work, when we go to college, when we look after the kids, when we, we cannot live in the old way anymore if we believe in the resurrection. As we face suffering, we know that God can turn evil into good. He has, through the cross and then the resurrection. He will bring good out of all his purposes. Not even death can stop that. And as you face death, know that the risen Jesus has conquered. And you will be raised to be with him forever. As you face your own sin, do it knowing that that Jesus' death and resurrection means that as far as God is concerned, You have been completely forgiven if your trust is in Him. And so today, you can live for Jesus. You can give your life freely to His cause, knowing that you are not missing out. You can suffer with Jesus and even die, but not be a loser. Because in the end, the only thing that matters is that you are in Christ And Christ has conquered all. Brothers and sisters, Christ is risen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have indeed raised your Son from the dead. We thank you that Our faith is not futile. That the gospel is indeed powerful to save us now and to bring us to with you forever. We pray that you help us live in light of the resurrection. Help us to always remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross and also the great victory that you have brought through the resurrection. And help us to live our lives looking forward to our resurrection and the eternal life we have with you in the future. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.
But why is it so good that Jesus rose again? Our faith is not useless. We are saved from our sins. And we know that suffering for the gospel is not in vain. How then should we respond? Well, there are many ways to live in light of the resurrection. But first of all, let's praise Jesus for his mighty victory. We stand.